medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance podcast. I'm Andrew Shafiq, a senior editor at the FMPA and your host for today's podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Paul McVeigh. Paul is an ex-Premier League and international footballer for Tottenham Hotspur, Norwich City and Northern Ireland. Paul competed against the best players in the world, which has helped shape his understanding of his methodology of high performance. Paul's credibility comes from his unique combination of reaching the pinnacle of elite sport, as well as being the first Premier League footballer to qualify with a master's degree in psychology. Paul specialises in implementing the mental tools required to evaluate the performance of leaders and teams from organisations across the world and has recently worked with PwC, Aviva, Barclays, NatWest and Microsoft, just to name a few. He is an established broadcaster on TV and radio with BBC, Sky Sports, BT Sport and is a published author of the ironically entitled book, The Stupid Footballer is Dead. Also, ha also has insights as a sports psychology for two Premier League clubs, Crystal Palace and Norwich City. So it really is our absolute pleasure to have Paul joining us today. So Paul, today we're going to be discussing your experiences and your expertise uh, in elite performance, which after that introduction, I think will be, uh, you know, there's a lot that we could delve into. But do, just to follow on from the intro, do you mind telling us a little bit about your, your journey to date? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew, and, and thanks for having us. And can you tell that I write my own introductions because it's uh, pretty lengthy and pretty uh, <laughs> pretty wordy. But you know, it's uh, it's it's been fascinating, really. It's it's something that I don't think I could ever have imagined or foreseen when I arrived at Tottenham Hotspur in 1994 as a 16-year-old kid. You know, walking down White Hart Lane for the first time on the first full day as a youth team player and seeing, you know, the Rolls Royce parked outside the reception with AMS one, you know, for Lord Sugar when he used to own Tottenham Hotspur and, and to go through now, nearly 27 years later. And, and as you said, you know, haven't had a, a really, really good time in, in professional football in terms of the playing side. And then really fortunately been able to have, you know, the last 10 years or so working on the other side of, of developing players and coaches and, and working with them from the mental performance perspective. So really, really feel fortunate, incredibly blessed to have had the, had the career that I have had to date and, you know, continue to have. And, and the fact that I've been very fortunate to start working around the world in the corporate world in terms of delivering keynote speeches, mental performance program, just suppose just shows the, the commonalities and the, and the interest from the business community with elite sport. That's really interesting. And I'm a big, big listener to the high performance podcast. And I, I want to make sure that we're not, you know, resembling a little bit too much of, of 
what they kind of do, but also getting some of those points across and how it can relate to football. But and do you mean having Comfrey and Damien Hughes in terms of their high performance podcast? Yeah, definitely. I think there's 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 a lot of value that you've kind of mentioned across across the two platforms, and be interesting to see kind of from your experiences how that relates to to football medicine and performance specifically. Having worked in business and sport, do you mind telling us a little bit about the kind of importance of accountability and responsibility in elite football? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because the framework that that I use when working in the corporate world has been, you know, I suppose assembled and collated after my playing days because that wasn't necessarily something that was a really um, important part of our vocabulary as I was going through my playing days. So, you know, it's interesting. So talking about podcasts, I've just started my own podcast called The Psychology of Success because, you know, speaking of someone like a Gia Comfrey and a, and a Damien Hughes, you know, so unbelievably successful their podcast is. And I really wanted to try and take it, you know, my version of it in terms of, well, Gia Comfrey presents about football and Damien Hughes, you know, has understood and studied the, the psychology of football, whereas I've played in the Premier League and I've studied the frameworks to it as well. So I suppose I just have a different perspective on what they're doing. And the same thing, I just want to speak to successful people to understand why they do it. But my first podcast just came out recently with, with Leon Lloyd, who's a former England rugby player. You know, so he, he's had an incredible career with Leicester Tigers, you know, played in a team that won two Heineken Cups, won six Premiership titles. He played for England. And the whole way through his career, they're talking about accountability. And responsibility and everybody owning up and taking you know ownership of any mistakes or things that go wrong whereas that wasn't really something that i came across in the playing days there was a lot more finger pointing and blaming than people taking accountability from my experience from the playing side so when you talk about the accountability side it's only something that i've realized and i suppose learned about read about studied more since i've stopped playing and start working on the the psychology, because really that helps me understand what do the best do? What are the most successful performers do? And they mostly take accountability for every single aspect of their life. That's that's brilliant. And you've obviously got a wealth of expertise, you know, and I think I read on the website it said you, you utilize your expertise to engage staff to consciously improve their kind of mental performance. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how that kind of comes into play and the importance of, of belief in elite football? And I suppose this is kind of two or three questions in one, but how does that relate to a football medicine and performance environment? Okay, yeah, that's very, <laughs> very broad, quite, quite, a, quite a few. Very complex, I know. <laughs> very complex. Um, well, let me go back to the fact what you mentioned there about having the conscious... Um, I suppose making a conscious effort to work on your mental performance is something that I've observed across the 10, 11 years I've worked in the corporate world, but also the first 20 years of working in the, in the, in the footballing world that I, I've come across so few people that consciously dedicate time to work on their mental performance. And, and even that, Andrew, probably needs a, you know, almost a, uh, a question to sort of to come in and almost be raised before you even start talking about that because the first thing is is 
well, why would you need to work on it? Because if you're talking about elite players, you know, they're technically incredibly efficient and competent, you know, physically, the elite performers in football, rugby, athletics, you know, they're all just incredible athletic specimens. So why do they need to work on this mental performance or psychology or whatever you want to call it? And that's really part of my job now. So on sometimes I think that I'm going to work with the players to help them understand their psychology and their, their mindset and mentality. And on the other side, I feel like I'm almost going to sell this whole subject of psychology because so many people think, well, why do you need to work on it? And if that's the starting point, that's a pretty low bar. So if I take you all the way back to the start of my career, I think, well, whenever my dad suggested to me as a 17-year-old kid that I should try something called visualization, now, I had no idea what it was. And the only reason why I tried it is because my dad is a big fan of golf and he used to hear about Jack Nicholas and being the most successful golfer ever and how he would visualize before every shot. And the only reason why he suggested I do it, he said, well, if this works for one of the most successful golfers in the world, why don't you see if it work, can work for you in football? So I did it. And, you know, all the way back, Andrew, you're a bit young, you probably not remember, but he sent me a cassette, a tape cassette. So I, I, I listened to this tape and, and essentially went through the process of visualization. And that was something I was doing as a 17-year-old kid. And that went through my career and, and all the way out to the other end. And the one scenario that I used to visualize was getting the ball on the left-hand side, cutting into the edge of the 18-yard box and then trying to curl it in the far top corner. Now, that was the one scenario I would visualize. And then, of course, I'd go into training and people like Chris Heaton, who was my coach at the time at Spurs, he would then get me up on the pitch after training, after lunch, and go, right, okay, here's 20 balls. Get the ball on the left-hand side, cut in and curl it in the top corner because I was telling them this is what I was doing. So whenever I get to the end of my career after 20 years and I look at this little video montage and the majority of the goals that I scored, unbelievably, are getting the ball on the left-hand side, cutting in and curling in the far top corner. So really what I'm saying is that as I was going through my career and doing these kind of, I suppose, mental performance exercises, having conversations with so many players and coaches as I did, very few people were doing this. So whenever you think about it, people are performing at a really high level without really utilizing or maximizing their mindset or psychology. But on the other hand, I really need to start thinking, okay, so if you had this level of ability, technically, physically, well, let's add the mental performance aspect in and imagine just how good you could be. That's really interesting. I think a lot of what you've said there almost resonates to the podcast we did with Sarah Murray, who I know, you know, and, you know, relating to some of the kind of context that she she put into place. Just, just to delve into some of the points that you've discussed there in regards to your experiences a little while ago when, you know, when you were playing and how that's kind of come to fruition now. What are some of the, the key challenges, I suppose, when you're trying to present the, the concept of embedding psychology into an elite, an elite environment? And what are some of the, the easy wins or the buy-ins that, that you can have with the key stakeholders? Yeah, I, th- I think that's what it is. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, but it is you need the buy-in. You know, because I'll, I'll give an example from my playing days, I had the opportunity to work with two psychologists. And that was clearly because the manager decided that we needed to work with a psychologist. But of course, 
I can imagine you can guess when the manager decided we need to work with a psychologist. It wasn't when we were winning the league and getting promoted into the Premier League and let's bring in a psychologist <laughs> to help us perform better. Of course, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's We've just been relegated from the Premier League. We're not performing well. We have one win out of 11. Let's bring in a psychologist. So even the connotation and the stigma that happens around psychology just shows, well, that's when you use a psychologist when almost like, you know, everything hits the fan and it's all gone downhill which is the complete opposite of the way I would do it. Cause I'm saying, well, everything I do is about performance. And if you're performing at whatever level that is in, and, and let's just take, doesn't have to be in a sporting context. This can be in any area of your life. If you're performing at a certain level, well, how do you improve that performance? And as my own kind of journey coming through sport and then into the business world, my own studies, my own reading on this subject, I made a decision a long, long time ago that the only thing I ever need to work on is my mindset or my psychology or my mental performance. Because if I get this in a really healthy, constructive place, everything else falls into place for me. And it's probably one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it, because I've had so many benefits of just working on my psychology because it's taken me through a football career that there's no way I should have had a 20 year football career being, well, four feet nothing, five feet six, you know, bang average player. I was always the kind of, you know, never the worst, never the best. But to be able to do that is solely based on my psychology and what that allowed me to do. And then of course, coming out of football and then working with the players at Norwich City and Crystal Palace, because I've had that playing days, then part of the buy-in is sometimes I just need to go on the pitch and start playing and start not making a player or chip the goalkeeper or do whatever. And suddenly the players look around and you go like, who's, who's this kind of, you know, what, how's he doing this? And then, of course, they realize they used to play a little bit and it just gives you a wee bit more kind of buy-in. And I will do anything to get that buy-in, whatever it happens to be, to allow the players to expose them to this whole world of psychology because I know it will benefit them. They don't know it at the time, but... I know it will benefit them if they start working on it. Really interesting. And I suppose, uh, again, relating a bit to the High Performance Podcast and to Sarah Murray, because she mentioned that, you know, the role that she's found in sport has changed over the years from where she was kind of embedded mainly with, you know, with coaches to, to being a bit more within holistically across across the board. So it's two, two questions, because we heard Tyrone Mings and I have performance podcasting. He individually speaks to a psychologist before, before every game. Where do you think a psychologist fits best in, in the organization? Is it within the medicine and performance environment? Is it with the coaches? Is it, you know, each individual athlete having their own access uh, privately or outside it? Where, where do you think it fits, fits best into the, the organization? I think it I think it needs to be across all areas of the organization because it is very difficult to pigeonhole it and kind of categorize it into well it fits into medicine or it just fits into the coaching or actually it should be something that the players should just see on a kind of one-to-one basis but I actually think that the greatest challenge that psychology and psychological practitioners have is being accepted across the club and being accepted that it's normal to be speaking about certain challenges and certain issues and also whenever things go well and and you know without trying to advertise my own uh, podcast but the reason why I started my my podcast was because 
I'd spoken to so many high performance people and really interestingly, highly successful people generally don't know why they're successful. They just are. They're just very good at what they do, but they really struggle to be able to articulate and tell you why or give you a framework or give other people help to allow them to achieve the same kind of things because they just do it because it comes into this, you know, almost like a unconscious competence that they're so good at it. They just do it without even thinking about it. So been able to try and help all coaches, all players, all people, support staff, et cetera, around the club. I think that's the biggest thing is getting the buy-in to realize that it's normal and you don't go and see a psychologist or speak to a psychologist when everything's going wrong. You're speaking to someone all the time because the knowledge that someone like a Sarah or whoever you're working with in, at the club will be able to help and improve the players in terms of their development. That's really interesting. And do you mind telling us a bit about kind of the, you know, the psychology of, of leadership and some of the key principles that, that you found um, or can apply from business and football and the various areas that you've, you've worked across? Well, yeah, that, that's, again, that's something that, that I just find fascinating because, you know, there's one of the things that probably people would almost imagine a leader to be is that kind of larger than life character, someone who's very, um, you know, probably enthusiastic, very energetic, almost quite an extrovert. Whereas over the years, I've not only played with some leaders, I've worked under some leaders, I've been around leaders who are the complete opposite of that. So they don't necessarily tell you what they want you to do but they will show you in terms of their performance and their willingness to compete or do what, what needs to be done. So the whole kind of concept of leadership is something that's probably um, has evolved and changed over the last probably 30, 40 years, especially probably even longer. Uh, you think about just not just in terms of sporting leaders, but it's, it's interesting where, when one of the things that, that whenever I was studying a number of years ago, um, it, it was, it was almost the, raised that that leadership is a process that you don't just have a leader and someone follows them almost like a manager or a captain of the team but it's more to do with the fact that this one individual or it can be a leadership team needs to bring this following with them and unless they have the ability to do that then you can't lead if no one's willing to follow you so it isn't necessarily a leader and leadership is about doing things or that kind of carrot and stick that it was before it's about the ability to understand and influence people it's then the ability to kind of help them come to the same whether it's mindset values uh, beliefs morals etc of what the group is trying to achieve so all of those uh, facets and characteristics all contribute to whether a leader is successful and whether they can bring a group together within their leadership it's fascinating to hear that. I was I was recently speaking to a, a, a close friend of mine who, who's kind of involved in leadership within the NHS and we were having a fascinating conversation about the difference between the definitions of leadership and management and the connotations that, that are associated with that. And I think you've, you've, you've drilled that point of home, I think, there really with, you know, maybe we should be calling football managers football leaders rather than the managers, I suppose. Well, the, the other thing as well, Andrew, is that you just, there's, I think it's probably leadership in all its different forms and guises doesn't have a singular definition. 
which goes back to probably why the subject in the field of psychology has probably struggled to be embedded within elite sport, not just football, because even with a golfer or a tennis player or in rugby, you know, psych psychologists have a subjective view on what they think is important. So the way that I will do it, or I think I should be imparting this knowledge is different how the next person at the next club will be doing and the next person at another sport will be doing, where that's so different to the sports scientists or maybe in your role, you know, possibly there might be a, a few different um, uh, avenues or, or options whenever you have a, a medical procedure. But in terms of like something like sports science, if you want to get stronger, if you want to get faster, you know, there's, there's pretty much just the one way to do it. And, and it's very measurable. And that is probably why the whole field of psychology is, has really struggled to almost being accepted around the field of elite sport because you, you're pretty much going in and going does the coach does the player do people within the organization do they buy into this individual because if they don't well then that whole field of psychology suddenly goes out the window and you think well hold on a minute that might be just one person's you know application of it but if you could go to someone work with someone else and that might be the best thing and most inspirational and you know and that and that's why i i love the subject because the two experiences i had one was with a guy called Keith Mincher, who was working with Norwich City at the time when we were getting to the playoff final and, and you know, just we, we missed out on penalties to get into the Premier League. But the whole year, year and a half of working with him, I just found it so inspiring and so engaging and I just loved speaking to him. And, even, and, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but even whenever I'd go up to him, and I'd be like, you know, Keith, how, how are you? How are you doing? I'd be like, oh, Paul, I'm embarrassingly well. Embarrassed. Why are you embarrassed? But he obviously just knew that way to engage and hook people in so you'd want to know more. Mm -hmm. And then you'd go, and again, the simplest, most mundane question, okay, do you want a tea or coffee? And I'd be like, tea or coffee? Tea or coffee? <laughs> and you just, you're just thinking, what is that? Is you're that automatically another, engaged, I, yeah. Absolutely, straight away. So he had that ability to draw you in. And then, of course, when his sessions were just, again, so fascinating. And then the same couple of years later, whenever we'd we'd been in the Premier League and then, Andrew, we didn't really like it up there. So we decided to come on back out of it again and, <laughs> uh, and working with a sports psychologist, Gavin Drake. And the same thing, he just shared a framework to be able to help me process what was happening in the football, as well as all the other facets of my life. And it was just so beneficial. And I remember doing something as simple as a goal setting session with Gavin and he came around to my house and we spent about an hour, an hour and a half with each other, having a cup of tea, sitting in my kitchen. And I remember him walking out 90 minutes later and I had six goals, six, you know, written out really clear, really achievable goals that I could go and work on over the next, not just few months, year, next five years. Cause one of them was actually for me to go and start my degree. I think I was about 26 when I started working with him and, one of them was to start my degree before I was 30, so you know, slightly longer-term goals. But none of them were about football. Now, mm -hmm. at that time in my life as a 26-year-old, that was what I needed because my football was going pretty well and I needed other areas of my life. So he had the, I suppose, the wisdom to realise that the goals that I needed at that time weren't in football because that was going pretty well. It was outside of football to make me more balanced, more well-rounded person. But again, the great experiences that I had, which is why I love the subject of psychology. And again, it goes back to the whole point of the only thing I've ever needed to work on is my psychology, because that's why 
I've had a career in football. That's why I'm a keynote speaker. That's why, you know, I'm in great health whenever I'm 43, because I stay in shape, because I have great relationships with my friends and family, because I spend time doing it, all based on my psychology that allows me to do all of this. That's fascinating. I suppose just just because you know majority of our listeners are are those practitioners working in in the elite football environment more specifically, and you know you've got the experience of sport, you've got the experience of being a, a you know an ex professional footballer at the top of the game, and as well as working at the the kind of sports psychology front. What 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 do you think are kind of key key points that a medical and a performance team can learn? from psychology or for for a club for example who doesn't have access to to sports psychologists where do you think they can start to embed a service or you know just some initial points that they can start to to, to work on that's, that's that's a really good question it's, i think it's it's probably quite a difficult question but it would also be um as, as i'm sure you know your first protocol whenever you walk into a training ground you would probably go straight to the physio room, do you? Whenever you're there with the players. And yeah. actually, the physio and probably the kept men or women who have been at clubs have almost been pseudo-psychologists for decades. You know, I, I know for a fact that I poured my heart out to the physio, you know, time and time again over nearly 20 years because they are the people who seem to be there, especially whenever you're injured and the player's injured, that they're, they're there at the time whenever you're probably at your lowest in football. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're constantly constantly having these conversations that almost, it's exactly the conversation that a psychologist wants to have. So if there isn't access to a psychologist, then, and physios generally are pretty good at this because they, they have that kind of care in nature anyway. You know, anyway, the experience I've had of all the physios I've worked with, they've had that care in nature. They want the best for the player. And generally, they're very good listeners. So I suppose that is that's if you don't have access to a psychologist. But I think whenever the, the big part about all of this and, and the kind of the whole world of elite sport and you touch on right at the start, is that accountability? And the probably one of the, the best lessons I had was with Gavin Drake, who was our the second sports psychologist I work with. And that was the ability to reframe whenever things happen. And especially as you know, in elite sport, that so many things go against you, so many challenges and, and difficult times um, are experienced by players and coaches, you know, going through all their careers and having the ability to reframe it into a constructive way is probably the most beneficial thing I've ever learned. So I'll give you a really quick example. Whenever I was sort of going through the first half of my career, I would generally say, have a bad game or didn't perform to my best. And whenever I come off the pitch, I would probably take that bad performance and maybe hang on to it through the Saturday evening, all day Sunday. So it probably wasn't much fun to be around from family and friends in the Monday morning's training. And if it was a really bad performance, sometimes in the Tuesday. Um, but when you think about it from a physical perspective, how quickly do you move on from a bad game? Well, as soon as you finish the, the match, as soon as the final whistle goes, you're generally in, normally get some food in the change room, then you're out for a warm down, then you're in for a nice bath, then you go home and recover, get the tights on, whatever you're doing. So physically, you move on immediately. But because of my lack of knowledge and because I was probably a little bit more immature, 
I didn't realize that that's possible to move on immediately from a bad performance. But it was only because in my head, psychologically, I didn't know how to reframe it. So instead of me coming after a bad game and going, why are you so stupid, Paul? Why do you always miss this? Why do you always mess up? That was the kind of questions I'd ask myself. And as we know, the brain's a bit like Google. You know, you ask any question of yourself, you'll get a million answers within a split mm -hmm. second. But because Gavin said, well, it's not actually necessarily what happens that's the most important thing. So the outcome isn't the most important thing. It's then how you think about the outcome, which of course is in psychology, it's just a reframe. So instead of asking myself, why have I always messed up? Why am I so stupid? Some of the questions I started asking myself was, okay, what can I learn from this bad performance? Or what can I do differently? Or what can I put in place to try and minimize this happening? And just by simply asking myself different questions, because I reframed the situation, put me on a completely different path. And it got the stage where I could walk out of the dressing room, whether I played well or had an absolute shocker, and still be able to put that behind me, knowing by Monday morning or even by Saturday evening, I was already moved on mentally, knowing that I'll start analyzing and doing and being more constructive as the week goes on. That's brilliant. That's I think one thing that, that kind of shines through speaking to you is, is, is the importance of framework across across the board. And I think, I mean, we could talk, we could talk all day, but one, one aspect <laughs> I'd just like to finish on asking you about, which is a personal interest of mine, is, you know, the importance of empathy. And if, if there's a specific framework you have in that setting, especially for athletes who are, who are you know, undergoing injuries or illness, because... From my personal perspective, you can you can sometimes tell as soon as they come into a medical room, you know, if, if they say hello, if they part, engage with you before you engage with them, you get a bit of a, of a feeling of how the mood is that day. But, you know, do, do you have any kind of take homes in the sense of or a framework for being empathetic? I know that sounds silly, but to deal with injury and illness and athletes specifically. Well, I, I think the, the, the issue that I had and, you know, I don't want to have um, a generalization across all professional players but this was my experience that when I was going through my playing days I didn't really have much empathy with other people because a I probably didn't really understand it and b it probably wasn't going to benefit me now this is really interesting Andrew because when I start talking about me as a 43 year old looking back at what I was like as a player and when I was a player I was so self-centered I was so selfish. I was so focused on just being the best that I could be that anything outside of that really just sort of faded into insignificance because it didn't help me achieve what I wanted to achieve. Now, that sounds incredibly ruthless, but as probably yourself and anyone who's listened to this will see the traits of high-performing people and realize that's really common, actually. So the issue I had was I didn't really have any empathy. So it was only whenever I came out of football and I started studying things like emotional intelligence and, and EQ. And whenever I was on a course, and I remember the, the guy who was delivering an absolute, you know, incredible guy, like double doctrine of psychology, psychiatry, an amazing guy called Martin Newman. And he started the subject of empathy and, and he just broached this, I think it was something like, uh, Socrates or Plato or something as this opening quote is like just remember everyone you meet fighting their own battle and I kind of clocked that and thought I don't think every person I meet in my life's fighting their own battle 
and don't think you know I'm fighting my own battle. Anyway, I did I didn't say anything at the time, but went up to him at lunchtime and said, "Listen, man, I just want to pick you up on that. You know, I, I don't think that's the case, and I don't think that's necessarily true." And he just kind of smiled and nodded at me, and he was like, mm, "Okay," you know, didn't obviously didn't want to get into any kind of argument or confrontation. And I kind of left the course after a few days. I remember going home and speaking to my brother, who's you know slightly different personality meets has a bit more issues more mental health challenges and i said just remember everyone you meet fighting their own battle and he's like yeah absolutely and then the light bulb just went off for me and i was like yeah it just shows because my empathy because of probably because of the environment i was in for so long my empathy was zero and now for the last 10, 11 years, whenever I now come across people, it's one of the first things that I kind of think of because I know that it's so low and I'm so conscious to try and improve my empathy. But that's probably not a framework was what you're asking, but it's more the fact that it was the light bulb moment that allowed me to start understanding people better because I'm less thinking of myself and more thinking of how other people. That's really interesting. I suppose I know you said it's not a framework, but it's, it's highlighting that awareness and that alone is, is is important enough to understanding who you're working with or who you're treating or, you know, whatever it may be in whatever field that you're in. Well, that, that's also the, just the, the four areas, isn't it? There's the four levels of, of learning a skill, isn't it? It's that, you know, unconscious incompetence. And, and I didn't know that I was terrible at empathy until eventually I had this conversation with Martin Newman and I suddenly am yeah. consciously incompetent but I now know I'm terrible at empathy and I haven't got to the fourth level of that unconscious competence of I'm just really good at it I'm now at the kind of third level where I'm consciously competent and I kind of I'm always asking people and I'm always inquiring about how they feel so when I always ask people how do you feel rather than you okay you know which just hopefully starts a different conversation yeah that's really really interesting Paul, thank you very, very much for joining us today. I think that's, you know, it's fantastic for listeners to, to, to be able to hear you you speak, especially with the angle and your perspectives from being a player, business, sports psychology, and the various areas that you've you've worked in and the wealth of experience that you've you've gained over the years. Is there anywhere that you would um, recommend for listeners to, to reach out if they're uh, interested in kind of learning a little bit more about some of your work or listening to some of the, the stuff that you've mentioned across the podcast? Yeah, definitely. So if anyone does want to find out anything more, then my website is paulmcveigh.co.uk. That's M-C-V-E-I-G-H, paulmcveigh.co.uk. And obviously I'm on all the social media platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. And this is paulmcveigh77. But if you're in the podcast, then I'd really appreciate a, a follow and a listen on the psychology of success. It's, it probably is, is akin to Gia Comfrey's uh, High Performance Podcast. Whereas we have people like Leon Lloyd and Chris Akabusi, and we're actually having a, a NFL quarterback coming on in the next week or so. So we have just a whole range of, of high-performing people from the world of sport, business, and TV and film. So, yep, feel free to join, join us on the Psychology of Success podcast. Super. Thank you very much, Paul. And listeners, we'll put up the, the kind of uh, links to some of the things that Paul's mentioned there so you can gain access to, to all those uh, various aspects. If you enjoyed today, please subscribe to the FMP on our Spotify and SoundCloud accounts where you can reach all of our podcasts. Alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free via the podcast section of the FMPA website. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.